Hi, I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. At Institute for the Future, we look a lot at the future of space. Because even as NASA has been subjected to relentless budget cuts, new means for engaging with the final frontier are emerging. Government organizations are changing from the sponsors of orbital projects funded by taxpayers to secondary supporters and even customers of ventures around medicine, manufacturing, surveillance, and even space exploration. Meanwhile, there's an array of citizen science projects informed by the do-it-yourself and maker mindset that are all about harnessing curiosity and passion of people who are enchanted by the wonder of space. I think we're all eager to try to understand our place in the cosmos, and nothing sparks the imagination more than the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Today on For Future Reference, we speak to Seth Shostak. Every day I get at least one email or phone call from somebody who's having difficulties with aliens in their personal lives. The senior astronomer at the SETI Institute and the author of a fantastic book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. We'll get started. Earth, Earth to Seth. Why is this a little hot here? Okay. If you could start by um, telling us your name, what you do, and where you do it. Well, I'm Seth Shostak. I'm senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. And uh, we look for life in space, and in particular, the project I'm involved with is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So we're looking for clever critters uh, amongst the stars. Just that idea, Seth, that that you uh, spend your days searching for extraterrestrial intelligence really sparks the imagination. How can it not? Um, what's going to happen when we discover that we're not the only living things in the universe? Well, you know, it depends on what you mean by living things, what's discovered first. There's a, you know, fairly high probability that what we'll find first within, you know, say two decades is uh, evidence that there's life on Mars, for example, or was life on Mars, or maybe some of the moons of the outer solar system. Uh, Some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn have the kind of conditions that, if you're a bacterium, might uh, appeal to your lifestyle. So it's quite possible we'll find life fairly quickly. I think we'll also find intelligent life fairly quickly, but, of course, that's uh, just my opinion. It may not be the case. If you just find you know, bacteria on Mars or dead bacteria on Mars, I think the reaction to that will be very similar to what happened in 1996 when a couple of NASA scientists claimed that they had found, you know, frozen microbes, microbial fossils, if you will, in a, in a meteorite that was known to come from Mars. It was a huge story. It was a very big story. But then it turned out that, well, maybe it wasn't quite true. So the story sort of went away. But people were just interested. If we were to pick up a signal tomorrow night from uh, an intelligent society, say, you know, 500 light years away or 1,000 light years away, whatever, uh, I, I think similarly, it would be a very big story. So the immediate reaction will just be curiosity. Over the long term, you know, it's like discovering America. The immediate reaction is interesting, but it's the long-term consequences that are more interesting. What ha- let, let's say you find a signal tomorrow night because you're, you're constantly looking for, for 
signals indicative of uh, intelligent life. Who gets the first call? Well, uh, actually, we get the first call. Uh, I think that many among the public have this idea that we have a yellow sticky on our computer monitors here with, you know, the White House direct line or the Pentagon or, uh, I don't know, maybe the <laughs> the National Enquirer. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, the, but the facts are, and when I say the facts are, that isn't just hypothesis. We know from the false alarms that have occurred in the past that what really happens is as soon as we get a signal, long before we're convinced – that what we found is really E.T., the media start calling us. So uh, you will uh, hear about it the way the president hears about important developments by tuning in CNN. <laughs> so, Seth, maybe you can just talk about the, the technology behind SETI. Well, the technology is very similar to what was portrayed in the movie Contact, right, where Jodie Foster was using big antennas, including the one down in Puerto Rico, uh, to try and eavesdrop on signals that might might be being broadcast by extraterrestrials, either deliberately because they want to get in touch with us for some some reason, or you know, just as part of their you know normal high tech lifestyle, they, they create signals the same way we do. So uh, that's what we do. Uh, we have a series of forty two antennas, as kind of a phalanx of antennas about 300 miles north of San Francisco in the Cascade Mountains. It's called the Allen Telescope Array. And we use them to uh, try and uh, find signals coming from mostly nearby star systems. We point the antennas at nearby star systems that are thought to be good places for planets that might harbor life. I've been up there, actually, at the Allen Telescope Array, and it was quite wonderful, really, under the under the night sky. Um, uh, just Jack Welch gave us a tour, and... and just looking at um, you know the 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 antenna pointing up and you know it just really sparks the imagination um, you know and you think back to you know when I was a kid and and you know in the seventies and there was a lot of talk this was you know the heyday of close encounters of the third kind and um, you know a lot of uh, UFO sightings at the time. Um, do you think that there is a renewed interest um, in SETI? Does it come in phases, the public's interest in this? Well, that's hard to judge. I, I can only say on the basis of the number of emails I get per day from you know the public or maybe a better indicator might be the number of uh, calls per week from the media. And that, that's always a considerable number, actually. I, I can't say that it's gone up and down very much. It seems to be a constant interest. It's sort of, to me, like the interest in dinosaurs. I think it has a similar cause, too. And people are interested in dinosaurs because you're hardwired to be interested in anything with big teeth. And I, th <laughs> I think there's something similar going on with aliens. But uh, the only time that I thought, gee, you know, interest seems to be a little greater than normal, very subjective, but uh, when uh, the first uh, series of The X-Files came on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that seemed to make a difference. But I, but I do think that, you know, a fair fraction of the public is dimly aware, or maybe not so dimly, of the fact that we're now finding planets around other stars, that planets are as common as cheap motels, that we're uh, not only finding planets, but that, you know, there's a planet around Proxima Centauri, the nearest other star. There are kind of puzzles in the sky, like what's called Tabby Star that might be the site of a giant astro-engineering project or something, you know, an alien megastructure, all this sort of stuff. These stories make it into the media frequently enough that I think that the, uh, the public is primed 
to expect aliens. And in fact, polls show that there's, that's the case. Something like 80 percent of the public believes the aliens are out there. So what kind of signals do the antennas typically pick up on a daily basis? Well, we pick up signals every few seconds, and those are all terrestrial interference. They're, they're intelligence indeed. They're, they're produced by transmitters, but unfortunately it's a human intelligence, uh, not an oxymoron because we can build radio transmitters. And from our point of view, if you can build a radio transmitter, you're intelligent. That's all we ask. You don't have to be good at poetry or anything like that. Uh, so in, indeed, we get signals all the time, but we you know, haven't gotten a signal that we would check out and find that, wow, this is not coming from some satellite wheeling overhead. This is coming from deep space. Of course, that's what we're looking for, but uh, we haven't found it yet. And, you know, that's the way it's going to be until we do find it. It's going to be no, no, no. And then one day, I expect it'll be yes. So you're a self-proclaimed alien hunter, um, Seth. What do you do all day um, in addition to educating the public about what you do and what SETI does all day. Yeah, well, uh, it seems to me my day job is to answer email, um, <laughs> but I think that, that that's not much different from anybody else. Mine too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what I really do all day. But uh, indeed, I mean, a lot of it is seeking funding because we're privately funded. That is to say there's no government money for doing these experiments to look for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, so we have to we have to worry about that. Otherwise, we can't do it at all. Uh, obviously, I do a lot of writing and, and speaking and that sort of thing. And uh, all of that, I think, is part of just, you know, telling the public what we're doing and getting them interested in it. And that is, for us, something that, you know, has long-term benefit. But also, I think that, you know, education is probably a worthy endeavor. So there's that. But in terms of SETI, I uh, I run the weekly SETI meetings, and we talk about uh, what objects we should be looking at, uh, writing up papers, that kind of thing, and just doing the research. So it's it's a mixed bag. No two days are the same. We also have a science radio show every week, and we, we produce that too. So uh, you mentioned um, funding for, for – for SETI, and you know, it's it's very clear that you know we're certainly not going to hear anything unless we're listening, and the only way we're going to listen is if there's funding um, to listen. Why do you think it's challenging to get SETI projects um, funded? Uh, I think that it's because you cannot promise results, right? If you're seeking funding from a venture capitalist. Uh, for example, for your latest idea, you know, a steam-powered spaghetti fork or whatever it is, you can go in and you can say, look, we've done some market research and so forth. And if we build this thing, they will come, they will buy it. And, you know, sales are expected to be this, that and the other. Now, it may not turn out that way. Most of the time it actually doesn't turn out that way. But at least you can make some predictions that have, uh, you know, that have a, a one in five chance of of being true, maybe, right? In the case of SETI, it's very difficult to say that if we only built this equipment or if we only hired, uh, you know, another guy to, to swell the team a little bit so we had more manpower working on this thing, that we would find a signal. If you could do that, if you could say, for X dollars, we guarantee you we will find a signal in Y years, if you could do that, I think that fundraising wouldn't be difficult at all. But since you can't do that, it's a bit like, uh, you know, I don't know, Chris Columbus going in and saying, you know, there might be an undiscovered continent over there. How about, you know, pitching in? Now, of course, that wasn't what he was saying. He didn't consider other continents. But um, I'm just saying if if you could guarantee a result, I think uh, the funding 
would be no problem, but we can't. Let's say that you receive like a, a stream of a really interesting signal, and you can tell it's definitely from intelligent extraterrestrial life. What would be the, the first step you would take in trying to figure out what the, the content of the message was? Well, if we found a signal, and it was clearly extraterrestrial, and it was narrow band, which is to say at one spot on the radio dial, so we knew it was being produced by a transmitter, uh, obviously the first thing we do is check it out very thoroughly by having other people look for it. Okay? Uh, but you know, long before we'd even confirmed it, it would be in all the papers. I, I, I want to emphasize that, uh, emphasize that because a lot of the public seems to be under the impression that all of this would be kept secret from them uh, on the assumption that it would so disrupt society that the government would swoop down on us and shut it all down. And, of course, we've had some false alarms where we thought maybe we had found something and there was absolutely not a peep out of the government. And that's at all levels, <laughs> federal, state, local, right? For that matter, my mom. None of them <laughs> seem to be interested. So, there, you know, <laughs> the idea would be kept secret kind of crazy. But as far as, you know, decoding what they're saying, hey, Bob, what are they saying? You know, that everybody's going to ask that. But in order to know what they're saying, you have to have the kind of receiver that can pick up the bits, right? It's not just good enough to know that they're sending you bits. You need to be able to see the individual bits, right? You've got to be able to record them to your hard drive and put them out on the web or whatever you're going to do. And that requires an instrument that has 10,000 times as much sensitivity as what we have today. So, the, you know, you're not going to get those bits in the first instance. All you're going to do is see the on-the-air sign is lit, if, if you will, and you won't know whether it's a top 40 station or whether it's Howard Stern. So uh, we would have to uh, build something much bigger. But that would take time and money, but I think you would probably have both. So so here's a question. You said that there have been, um, you know, almost false alarms or false positives, um, and there's the famous wow signal, and I'm sure there's others. Um can you describe, you know, what did the signal sound like or what was its fingerprint that, that made um, researchers think, well, this could be the real deal? Well, in the case of the WOW signal, which was picked up by a big radio telescope called the Big Ear, very, you know, ingeniously named, uh, at Ohio State University in 1977, well, that, that telescope was just sort of bolted in place, as it were. They, it wasn't being used for astronomy anymore, so they didn't try and swing it around too much, and they couldn't swing it around very much anyhow, given the, the, the way it was constructed. But in any case, so it was just looking, if you will, straight up. But of course, the Earth rotates. That's, that's an effect that many people may be aware of. So the Earth is rotating. So different things are you know, passing through the, if you will, the, the patch of sensitivity, the beam of the telescope as the day wears on. And uh, at one point, the computer printout, which was the way you got, you know, information out of this telescope back in 1977, the computer printout showed that you know, the background noise suddenly began to rise and went up to a high level and then went back down again in the, in the amount of time that the Earth would rotate enough to have, you know, some transmitter pass through this patch of sky, this beam, this patch of sensitivity. And the astronomer who would come in every day and pull the computer computer printout off the printer. He, he saw this thing, he circled it, and he labeled it, wow, right? So this is a triumph of marketing over product, perhaps, because <laughs> the, uh, the telescope automatically looked again a little over a minute later and didn't find the signal again. And it's been looked at many times. We, we've been looking at it, actually, over the course of the past month a couple of times ourselves. Uh, we've spent a couple of weeks looking for the wow signal again. We're not the only ones who have tried to do that. It has never been seen again. 
So what was it? Maybe E.T. gave us a shout and then just, you know, forgot about it. Went went on summer vacation less than a minute later. Uh, that could be. But, you know, it wouldn't be science to say, yeah, it, we found E.T., but he's off the air now. If you can't confirm it, then it's just an interesting signal. So, I mean, Seth, as as someone who has, you know, a job that's, I mean, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's a fascinating, you know, career step to to become, you know, one of the uh, leading scientists looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. How do you get there? How do you become uh, uh, the senior astronomer at the at the SETI Institute? You know, were you always interested in astronomy or or extraterrestrials or science fiction as a child? Certainly, in astronomy, I I had a an interest from a very early age, certainly the age of eight. By 10, I had built a telescope, and by age 11, I was making photos through the telescope of the moon. I wanted to make a time-lapse film, actually, of the moons of Jupiter going around Jupiter. Wow. (laughs) Well, I didn't do it. Uh, That's actually hard to do, and all I had was a wind-up 8-millimeter camera anyhow. But in any case, so that that interest goes way back. But it turns out that during my youth, there were a lot of films involving aliens, cheesy B-movies, there was still a market for B-movies back then before television destroyed it with C-television. But it, it uh, certainly fostered an interest in aliens. I wasn't reading science fiction particularly. I mean, I read a, a few things. But uh, in general, I was not a sci-fi fan. Many many people are. I'm not one of them. But I did like the movies. And uh, so I went to all of those. And uh, as I've said earlier, I think that an interest in aliens is something that's very natural to kids because, like dinosaurs, there's survival value in being interested in the habits of aliens if there are any. And uh, if you go into a classroom, you know, go into a fifth-grade classroom or whatever and just ask the kids, hey, how many of you kids think there are aliens out there? You, there will not be a kid in the class that doesn't raise its hand, right? They, they, they all think that this is true. So, you know, that interest was fostered mostly by the movies, but I think I probably would have had it anyhow. Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me, um, as you know, uh, with a couple friends, we recently uh, uh, started uh, a project to reissue the Voyager Golden Record in time for the 40th anniversary. And that, of course, is the is the golden phonograph record that a team led by Carl Sagan um, uh, attached to the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft. Um, and those craft embarked on their tour of the solar system and head off into interstellar space with this record. And even for me, you know, I'm not a scientist, but as a seven-year-old, when when those went up and you hear that a group of, of people um, uh, uh, were commissioned by NASA to, to create a message for extraterrestrials, you know, that sparks the imagination, um, you know. And so I think that it's it's exciting for people to hear that, that you know, ET and, and aliens aren't just science fiction um, or the or 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 you know uh, 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 the stuff of X Files episodes, but there are actual real scientists who are who are looking into this, um, you know, and have made a career out of it. Uh, yes, I, I think so. I, I think that's true. I mean, they're interested nonetheless, and uh, I think many among the public are aware of the efforts to try and prove that there's some cosmic company out there, not just to you know think about it, but actually do an experiment, uh, you might add into the mix the fact that one-third of the public believes that the aliens are not only out there, but they're here. 
right? They're in their spacecraft, you know, shooting across the skies or occasionally hauling people out of their bedrooms. Uh, that uh, that's not that's not a point of view that I happen to share. I don't think there's any truth to that. Uh, I certainly don't th- think there's any good evidence for it. But the, but a third of the public disagrees with me and sometimes violently on that point. So so the interest in aliens has many many facets. <laughs> so that so that's interesting. I mean, I'm sure that that you know you receive a lot of emails and phone calls um, from people in the in the UFO community who are convinced that, you know, there are extraterrestrials um, have visited Earth, you know, that there's nuts and bolts aircraft that uh, or spacecraft that have arrived here. Um, you know, do you is that true? Do you do you hear a lot from from these uh, uh, believers? Well, absolutely. Every day I get at least one email or phone call from somebody who's having difficulties with aliens in their personal lives or more frequently uh, has something to report. And in fact, they, they usually start, if it's an email, it almost always starts with, I have some very important information for you. And by now, I know what that means. <laughs> They're going to tell me they've seen something in the sky. And I have to say that, uh, although obviously I've had thousands of these things, uh, it's not that, uh, that I believe that, you know, these people are making stuff up, right? It's not a hoax. It's for real. They have seen something. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, witness testimony is a very poor, if you will, that's very poor evidence in science that somebody sees something right with their eyes. And then they they tell you this is good evidence for my new theory about how, you know, the Big Bang is all a falsehood and that kind of thing. You wouldn't believe that. Right. Yeah, as a scientist, you wouldn't believe that. You say you got to measure it. You got to do an experiment. It's something like that. So witness testimony. No, but. I do encourage these people because, as I say, they're they're all sincere. I, I can't think of one example where I thought it was a hoax. They're all sincere. I suggest if you have any photographs, do you have any videos? And in some cases, they do. So I urge them to send that to me because photography happens to be a longstanding interest of mine. So often I can tell something from the photos about what it might be that they have seen or, or videoed. So I, I do – you know, I do answer all the the emails and phone calls. I do. I've never seen anything where I thought, man, this is it. Seth, can you talk a little bit about your book, Alien Hunter, and what it's about? Yeah, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Right, exactly. Well, that well, it, it's a kind of a description of the whole SETI enterprise, and it begins with a false alarm we got in 1997, which uh, I've, I've mentioned here. But uh, it was a false alarm that was so convincing to us that we thought maybe this was the real deal. Nobody went to sleep that night. <laughs> we kept watching the computers. Nobody went out to get a hamburger. Uh, but the men in black never showed up either, so that was disappointing. But uh, that, they, they, that, they did, Seth. They just erased your memory. Yeah, maybe the neuralizer got to me. That would be great <laughs> because I figure if the government can afford to pay the salaries for men in black, they can afford to pay for a little bit of SETI research too. <laughs> but uh, the book begins there, but it goes into the, the some of the history of SETI, and then it becomes, you know, sort of a description of how we're looking, why we think they're out there, what they might be like, and uh, what would be the consequences of a detection. I consult for sci-fi films occasionally, you know, I've done at least a half a dozen, and uh, the directors, producers, writers, and so forth will often ask, you know, why are the aliens here? Why have they come to Earth? Because in the movies, they often do that. They they want something from us, our molybdenum or something. Uh, and uh, the second question is always, what kind of, kind of weapons do they have? That's, you know, just 
uh, useful for the filmmakers because they want you know you to describe what weapons the aliens would have as if you had the slightest idea. <laughs> and the third thing they ask always is, what do they look like, right? And there I, I venture to suggest that most of the intelligence in the cosmos is not biological, so there's no point in making them soft and squishy, ugly little guys with a lot of drool, although they'll do that anyway. Oh, that's interesting. So you think the intelligence is, is some kind of... Uh, uh, Hardware. Yeah, as opposed to wetware. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Look, they have to at least be at the point where they've uh, developed radio transmitters because otherwise we don't we don't detect them, right? So they have to be at the technical level that we achieved, if you will, a, a century ago, that kind of thing. But in this century, we're probably going to inter, uh, invent generalized artificial intelligence, you know, thinking machines, and we're sort of on the road to that. And maybe it'll take 100 years, maybe it'll take 50 years if you believe some of the people working in the field, maybe it'll take 250 years. All those numbers are the same number. It happens very quickly. You invent radio and within a few centuries you have uh, thinking machines. And the thinking machines, of course, can get up and leave and some of them presumably would. And so, uh, you know, just as a parallel to what we ourselves are doing, I would say that the majority of the IQ in the cosmos is not little gray guys with big eyeballs, but uh, in fact, machinery. Yeah. So, so Seth, one of the questions um, that's come up again recently um, is this concern by uh, uh, respected scientists like Stephen Hawking and others that you know we're putting our putting humanity at risk by not just listening to um, signals for hopefully an extraterrestrial greeting, but also sending messages out. What's your take on that? Well, yes. Obviously, Stephen Hawking is, uh, you know, a, a very thoughtful person. And what he was saying is that, you know, suppose we find a signal and then immediately people want to answer it by firing up some transmitter somewhere and saying, hey, we're the earthlings. We heard you guys. And, you know, we'd just love to get in touch and, you know, send us pictures of your relatives or whatever you would say. Uh, uh, he says, you know, maybe that's a bad idea because you don't know it could be that they're hostile, and all you've done now by answering is tell them, hey, we're here, right? <laughs> it's, it's sort of like a deer in the forest, you know, telling uh, the carnivores, hey, I'm here, right? Maybe not a good idea. I, all right. Well, you can't argue with that. that. That could be. I mean, maybe nobody knows what the aliens are really like, so maybe it's better to be cautious. But, and I have to say, I said this in a, a solicited opinion piece for The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, that... In fact, we've been broadcasting since the Second World War the kind of signals that any really advanced society, a society only maybe 100 years more advanced than we are, could easily pick up. Right? And if they're not uh, at least 100 years more advanced than we are, they can't come here and ruin your whole day by incinerating California. <laughs> they don't have that technology. So in a, in a sense, we've already told them we're here, right? At least the ones that are advanced enough to be potentially dangerous – so I, I think that that's, you know, worrying about that uh, that horse flesh after it's fled the barn. So, Seth, one of the things you mentioned is um, you spend time sort of in thinking about what would happen if we actually discovered intelligent life um, elsewhere. What would happen? Well, as I said, the first thing that happens is that, is that it's a very big story. And everybody's going to ask, well, uh, you know, tell us more. I mean, how far away are they? Is there some planet there? Can you can you see a planet? And do we know what they look like? And what are they saying? All those questions that are the very obvious ones and indeed are the most interesting ones, really. 
what would happen if we found a signal is that every other telescope in the world, you can be sure, every other telescope in the world that could see this patch, uh, this patch of sky would be aimed in its direction trying to learn more. I mean, you would have a very concerted campaign to see if there was a planet around a star in the direction from which a signal is coming from. You know, you'd have a, other radio telescopes trying to pick up the signal and narrow down the patch of sky where the signal is coming from so you could localize it, that kind of stuff. All that very straightforward science stuff. Uh, there would be a big plea for more money to build a, a, a telescope that could look for a message, all of that. So, you know, that's what's going to happen in, in, in the beginning, and that might take 20 years, right? After that, if you actually found a message, if the signal were persistent, uh, and if it's not persistent, it, it's much harder to do anything. But if it were persistent and you could see the bits, you know, then people would try and uh, decipher the bits. Personally, I... I'd put them on the internet and let everybody try, but you know that's just a, a crowdsourcing approach to doing this problem. But you you could do that, and I mean it didn't take so long to decipher the hieroglyphics. If they if they send a lot of information, I think you might be able to understand some of it, possibly, possibly. But even if you never understood it, I think that the the real impact, even in the long term, is the fact that you know that what's happened here on Earth has analogs throughout the cosmos. So what what is your your gut feeling on and I know this is conjecture but if if there was enough of a signal of linguists being able to decipher it and figure it out I mean linguists have have figured out dead languages that that no one thought were crackable do you think that alien languages could be cracked also Well I think there's an assumption in there that they're using a language Right, automatically <laughs> assume it's a language that they, you know, they're using writing. They may be sending pictures. They may be sending sounds. I mean, you don't know what they're sending. I, I personally, I think pictures are a better deal. I, I wrote a paper in which I said something to the effect that if we were broadcasting to the aliens, I would just send the Google servers. I would just send it all because I, you know, there, there's so much redundancy on the internet that they would be able to figure out a lot of stuff by comparing photos and text and sounds and so forth. You know, their computers would do all the comparisons, of course, but they, they could learn an enormous amount because of the redundancy. So uh, if they've done the same thing, then maybe we can learn something. But, you know, it's a bit like the idea that you would give Neanderthals a key to the Library of Congress and say, you know, you guys might learn something by going in there. And they'd go in there and they'd see all these books and I'm not sure whether they'd learn anything. But at least they'd know that there was some group of people that had, a, you know, if you will, a more sophisticated society than their own. So, Seth, I just have one final question for you. What is it that inspires you? What inspires me? There are many things that inspire me. It's mostly music, I think. But I, I think in this field, what is inspirational is the fact that this is a big picture question. Right. I mean, I could have gone into automotive repair and I can't say that I wasn't tempted. But <laughs> and that would be fun and useful, useful for my neighbors. Anyhow. But, uh, you know, it's not a big picture question. This is a big picture question. Are we alone in the universe? I mean, everybody asks that question. The ancient Greeks, uh, the ancient Greeks asked themselves that question. So it's in a way a real privilege to be involved with a group that is trying to answer that question. So that's a motivation Plus, of course, the almost weekly new developments in astronomy that, that, that keeps your interest up. The improvement in technology keeps your enthusiasm for a project up. So I think all those things make uh, work uh, something I look forward to. Seth, this has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Seth. Keep your eyes on the skies. I, I will. The trouble is I walk into walls when I do that. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Thanks. 
You know, Mark, I, I always love talking with uh, with Seth. I mean, not only does he have, a, obviously, a great sense of humor, but, you know, he's a pretty amazing guy, really. I mean, this is somebody whose career is dedicated to searching for extraterrestrials. I mean, is there a cooler job? It's amazing when you think about that, that there's actually somebody who does that. And I also think it's like a, a fascinating job to have and also kind of a, a lonely one because he's waiting for something that, that may never come. Absolutely. I mean, I think what he said about the difficulty in getting funding is because you can't make um, any promise. I mean, it's almost like the purest form of scientific research um, into the unknown. Um, you know, but I think all the other stuff that he says he does um, and what SETI Institute does and what even Frank Drake, who um, was a SETI pioneer, um, he worked on the Golden Record as well. What all of these people involved in SETI do is really to spark the imagination of the public to think about science, to think about space and our place in the universe and to ask really big questions. So, you know, it's true that we, you know, he can't promise, you know, a funder that, you know, if he only had this amount of money, he could find a SETI signal, you know, guaranteed within 10 years. You know, he can't say that. But I think what SETI can promise and what they deliver is um, the ability to instill a sense of wonder about yeah. our world and our universe. In this case, the the question, what were the questions that that uh, are, are evoked from that are more valuable than than the answer that might not come. Although, if the answer does come, I mean, that would be like amazing. Absolutely, absolutely, it, it, it makes it all worth it. Even if the odds are infinitesimal, if that signal was found, I mean, you're answering. Like he, like Seth said, one of the questions people have had ever since they looked up at the sky. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that um, it's interesting to hear him talk about what happens, you know, from a practical perspective is that it's a big news story. And then there's a lot of research trying to find out more information. You know, it's it's a it's almost like a longer play than the scientific or science fiction idea of of, you know, a UFO landing on the White House lawn. Um, mm-hmm. But I think over the long term, it, it you know, even if we can't ever decode the signal or find out anything other than, you know, yes, there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, um, you know, it still has a profound impact on humanity. I think so. In the same way that, uh, you know, landing on the moon changed the way we, we think about our lives as well. This this would be equally, if not uh, greater, of an impact on people. Definitely greater. But yeah, I mean, I the the questions that Seth brought up are the questions that that I want answered. If we get a signal, is where are they and what do they look like? Um, and then hopefully someday, what can we learn from them? Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with production support from Parker Yesko and BMP Audio. Greg Fleischett composed the music.